Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Welcome to this Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Sue Cotter. Dr. Cotter is a professor at the Southern California College of Optometry at Marshall B. Ketchum University and is co-chair of the Pediatric Eye Disease Investigator Group, a National Eye Institute-funded clinical research network, while also serving on the board of the American Academy of Optometry as its incoming president. Welcome, Dr. Cotter, to Sandbox Stories. Well, thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Um, you said that your introduction to eye care was from your uncle who fit you in RGPs when you were nine. And there wasn't much of that going on at the time. Tell us that story. So I had Uncle Norbert Patterson, who was an optometrist at a private practice in Harvard, Illinois. Um, and um, I, I never actually had a first pair of glasses. I think he gave me a pair of readers. I didn't have them for long. And when it was time to get like a pair of myopic glasses, he just put me in contacts. He was a big contact lens fitter, and back then, um, it actually was, and it wasn't, it was um, PMMAs. They weren't oh, even sure. RGPs. It was PMMA back then. And, you know, pair of contact lenses, and, um, you know, I loved them. And, um, you know, I don't even think I had a pair of backup glasses, to tell you the truth. Did, did, did you end up getting so motivated through that experience that that kind of drove you toward optometry? You know, I... I don't really recall like a, you know, a moment of recognition or anything, but um, I think it was always in the back of my mind. I'm sure it was influential because he's the only optometrist I knew. He provided all my eye care. And at an early age, I'm sure I was the only one in the entire school that had a pair of contact lenses back then, you know? Um, and so I, yeah, I, I think so, you know, it was important to me. And I don't, I don't even think I'd love to go back and see how myopic I was. I probably was, you know, a low myope. Um, but it made a big difference to me. And, um, you know, I was in these PMMAs until, until my residency. Oh, and, that and that's an interesting story because um, the contact lens department decided that, you know, PMMAs were no longer in. You should be wearing healthier contact lenses, RGPs. And they switched me out of them. And then I could never wear contact lenses again. So, Yeah. I never that, wore contacts again. Mm -mm. I mean, and when I, I got into practice, it was about that time. And there were a lot of people who had hard lenses. And when they got to gas permeable lenses, they couldn't do it. No, they, they'd all get all cruddy. And yeah. Um, yeah. And I was one of these people, like people get grossed out by it. But I mean, I wore them like 24-7 just about. I mean, I didn't sleep in them. But, you know, if you had a really long day, I was in my contacts a really long day. And I used to use dish soap to like clean them. And, you know, and I was one of those people who would, you know, stick them in your mouth and put them back in. I mean, it sounds gross, but I did it for years. Never had any problems. Always had wonderful visual acuity. I've never had visual acuity like I had with those lenses ever since. How about cleaning them with popcorn salt? That was the thing. Oh, I don't remember popcorn salt. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to Illinois College of Optometry before this residency. Did you intend on going in practicing optometry or becoming an educator? Well, I had all intention of going into private practice. I mean, that was 
that was my, the only thing I knew about optometry. And that was just about the time where you were starting to get corporate commercial optometry places opening, you know? And, you know, I mean, so that was a long time ago. And <laughs> my uncle, that was like, you know, that was like awful. You would never do that because all the private practice docs back then, you know, it was a bad thing that you had these corporate centers opening. And so my intention was to go into practice. And then um, I was SCCO. I was coming back to Chicago. I knew that. It's hard to look for a practice situation when you're living in California and you're looking in Illinois. And um, ICO had a opening for a job. And I thought, well, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, a credible job. I couldn't, I couldn't work commercial. My uncle, you know, it would disappoint <laughs> him completely. So it was a credible, upstanding position. And then I'd look for uh, a private practice opportunity in the, in the meantime. And I got there and I started teaching and it was like, and I never left. I just loved it. And so I, I always say that I got to be into optometric education accidentally because it was not a goal of mine. What was your residency area of regard? So I did a residency in, uh, it was called children's vision back then, but it'd be pediatrics and binocular vision. And I think... It, the mentors that I had, I was at SCCO and my mentors were like Michael Rouse and Betty Caloroso, Lou Hoffman. And so they were, they published, they wrote, they were really good optometric educators. So I had some really good role models. And I think even though I'd never even thought of going into optometric education, by working with those people for a year, you know, you start planting the seeds. And, you know, I went to the academy meetings and I published, you know, a few papers or I, you know, submitted two papers to OVS. Um, John Griffin was there. So I had really good role models. So even though it wasn't my plan, it probably didn't take much once I got back to ICO that I liked it, that I thought, yeah, this is for me. Well, I was significantly influenced in my education when you came back to ICO and were on faculty and, you know, you had such a commitment to binocular vision matters. And I guess I'm curious, as you had the seed planted and you started in that path, did it just become this deep area of regard right away? Or were you still sort of paying attention to contact lenses or retina, you know, emergent care? Yeah. I'm curious how that went then. Well, I went into, when I started optometry school, I had two areas I was interested in. I knew I had two areas. It was contact lenses and it was pediatrics, okay? And so those are the two things that I thought were interesting. And I was, you know, looking forward to learning more about. And throughout optometry school, all of a sudden, contacts didn't seem that interesting to me. Um, and pediatrics was way more interesting. For, you know, and I don't know why, but I can just, that's that's where I ended up. And um, I do think probably contacts because I had worn contacts, you know, I mean, it was interesting. And my uncle was a big fitter. I mean, he had a big contact lens practice. Um, so that was probably the interest there. And, you know, and that was back in the days when you modified all your rigid lenses, right. you know what I mean? It wasn't like you just ordered them from the lab. I mean, you were creating all these lenses and everything. Um, and, and pediatrics, because even... I always felt like if children weren't taken care of from a visual standpoint, that that puts them at a disadvantage academically, you know? And, and so you can change, you know, I always say you can change a child's tra trajectory in life if you get them when they're seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years of age, and they've got a significant visual problem, then you can eliminate it. Because if you got a significant visual problem, you're not doing good in school, and then you don't like school, 
you know, and that just goes on and on. And, you know, then you're, are you graduating high school? Are you not going to college? You know, then do you not get that good job? So, and you've got 70, 80 years ahead of you. So um, I think to me, there was just more passion. You know, I had more of a passion. It wasn't like contact lenses weren't that interesting, but I just, I to me, maybe I felt I could do more. I could do more seeing kids than I could fitting contact lenses. But I just wasn't as interested anymore. And then once you once you start slot yourself in a residency, you know, then I came back. You know, a lot of it's just fortuitous. I came back to ICO and they were like, oh, we need someone to teach strabismus. And I just happened to be there and just had learned strabismus from two of the best in the field. And so I plopped right into the course and, you know, the rest is history. I, you know, it, and it was a big area of interest for me, uh, but that made it. Probably since I was teaching it, I became even more interested. And, and quite a history it's been. Uh, you've now been at SCCO for nearly 25 years. What is your perspective on the progress of optometric education? Well, I don't know. You know, it's kind of a tough question. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is I think it's harder. Um, and the reason it's more difficult is because our scope has expanded so much. So even though it's a four-year program, there's an awful lot to learn because a lot of it's just your basics, even your basic physiology, anatomy, things like that, optics. And then from a clinical standpoint, um, I really, you know, I'm going to jump ahead, but I really admire people who are, do everything in their practice. I mean, how do you even keep up with it? I can't barely keep up in my little narrow row, you know, my, my slot that I'm in. And um, so... But we're obligated as educators to teach everybody enough that they can go to any state, no matter what, you know, the privileges are, and in any type of practice, and they're supposed to be able to know enough. So it's low vision and contacts and eye disease and pediatrics and binocular vision and refraction. And now it's, you know, I just did an interview and the, the gal was asking me, oh, do you, do you teach injections? And how about like lumps and bumps? Are you doing that? now and and we're obligated to start doing that so what happens you keep adding 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 and so I, I think it's a fine balance like what do you eliminate right or what don't you teach to a you know as in depth as you used to right or, or does it get extended uh, you only have yeah. so much time to teach in four years right what's the what's the most exciting thing going on lately at the southern college uh, southern california college of optometry Let's see. Well, we have a um, search going on for a president. So of Marshall B. Ketchum University, Kevin Alexander is retiring. And so we've got a search. So that could be exciting. It could be our next, you know, next era at MBKU. Um, you know, it hasn't been that exciting. I don't know if exciting is a good word because we're still dealing with all the COVID stuff. You know, and it's been really a challenge. It's, it's a challenge to get students to see patients and in labs and keep everybody safe. And and it's been going on for a while. I mean, and it's it's obviously better now than it was a year ago. But um, I think what's going to be exciting is when we get out of that, you know, and it's, it's, it's really tough. And it's been tough at all the optometry schools and colleges. Yeah, and but we I have know. eight new faculty or eight or nine new faculty. That's exciting. Oh. That's a lot of manpower. 
And we've got these young whippersnappers that have come in, you know, all residency trained. And um, we hired, you know, Julie Tyler from Nova. That was like, she's not a young whippersnapper. I mean, she's, you know, mid-career, very talented. So, you know, so we've got a, a lot of new blood. And that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. You spend a lot of your time now doing research. Uh, you said in a pre-interview, even more than teaching. Tell us about your key research activities. Well, um, the first would be I'm co-chair of the Pediatric Eye Disease Investigator Group. And that's a clinical research network that's funded by the National Eye Institute. So I always tell the patients it's your tax dollars at work that funds this network. And we have... Um, about 350 investigators, and it's both pediatric optometry and pediatric ophthalmology. So that's a little bit different, you know, because we work together as a team. And um, we conduct clinical studies that look at treatments for different eye conditions. So uh, amblyopia, intermittent exotropia, we're doing one pretty soon on uh, esotropia larger at near. Uh, retinopathy of prematurity trials, we just opened up two retinopathy of prematurity trials. And so that's a good part of my life is, um, you know, working with the other people in leadership to oversee that network and conduct these studies. Um, I've been I've been involved in PEDIG since 1997, so it's been a large part of my life for a while. I've, I've only been co-chair of the network, though, for the last three or four years. And um, our work has changed clinical practice. So that's like if some people say, well, what what's what are the good things about research? I can tell you a lot of good things, but one of the coolest things is that, like, if, if, if I were, if you were to take a course from me right now in amblyopia, it would be different than the course you took from me before. And that doesn't happen all the time. You know what I mean? Things, a lot of times, you know, treatment doesn't change that much. And it's totally different what we're doing in amblyopia now than we did before. And a lot of that's based on these random, these large randomized clinical trials that PEDIGS conducted. So that, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to ask if it's true that research is an increasing part of what the students experience too. It sounds like from your perspective, you've moved your career that way, but do students participate in research more now than they had in the past? Not at SCCO. And I don't think at mo most of the schools they are. Because if you remember back in the day, we had to do a senior research project, right? Like at ICO. Yeah. And when I got to SCCO, that was a requirement as well. It's no longer a requirement at SCCO and probably hasn't been for 15 years. Um, so they, that's one thing that I, you know, if you could change about the curriculum, it'd be nice to give them a better sense. We've got some courses. So I guess we do have some courses early on. I'm not involved in, uh, they have some type of research course, but no, they don't, they're not doing anything. They can, like they could hook up with a faculty, but it's not required. So out of a graduating class of a hundred, you might have one or two that might do a project. Uh, we try to emphasize to them about evidence-based medicine though. And you know what I mean? And, and to pay attention to the clinical trials and things like that. As you see uh, young people moving through their educational arc and they get toward the end, is it obvious to you which ones might move into academics, you know, that they're talking about residency and they're thinking about clinical education, talking about, you know, practical education, talking about research? Is that, is that obvious to you as an educator? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I don't think all the times it is obvious. 
Um, I think it's the same as it was before. Most people come into optometry because they want to see patients. Do you know what I mean? They, they, want, they want to see patients, and that's the way they end up there. And I've always felt, uh, I, I used to be like, if, you know, if people were interested in residencies, they came to me and talked to me about it. You know, I'd be a big cheerleader and, and tell them about it, but I didn't like go after them. And I think that we, that's not the best thing to do. You know, you have to kind of look for those shining stars or, you know, people that you think might fit that role really well and talk to them because a lot of them, they just have never thought about it, you know, because their experience with optometry was their local optometrist, you know, or the optometrist they went to and they, they're looking at the clinical practice of optometry. And yet many of them will make good educators. And, and, and it's really important because we've got this whole slew of these really senior educators retiring now. And if we don't get, if we're not feeding the pipeline, I mean, that's, that's optometric education. So we really need to, I think we need to start tapping people on the shoulder and saying, you know, just think about this now, you know, or maybe be involved with me on something. But otherwise, if you just kind of let them go, most of them just go clinically, they'll do a residency, and then many of them will go into a practice, some type of situation. And, and the yeah. same thing for PhDs. So our ODP, you know, our vision scientists and the people that have OD PhDs, we've got these, you know, fabulous, you know, people that are retiring or have just retired, you know, like Larry Tybos at IU and um, Cliff Shore at Berkeley. I mean, all these, you know, phenomenal researchers. Well, we've got to feed that pipeline. And encourage people not just to do residency, but also to do a PhD as well and go into optometric education. It's an interesting light bulb moment for me. I mean, I think first year and second year students should probably get a little bit of insight, not only about what practice management is like, but what a career in education looks like. I, right. I just don't think that the schools and colleges have necessarily thought of it as an overt action, but it sounds like the need is starting to grow. Yeah. And, I, and we're talking about it. I mean, like even at an academy uh, level, we're talking about it. And we just um, also, um, it's going to be our centennial. And we took uh, a large amount of money, like $100,000, or putting it into, um, uh, maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's a million dollars. It's probably, it's a lot of money. <laughs> but um, we funded some Azal fellowships, which are fellowships for researchers, like in graduate school, and then um, a program that helps. Uh, it's a big chunk of money, like fifteen thousand or twenty something like that, for people that are going from being an optometrist into a PhD program, uh, because it, it's a tough transition. Because you've got you're finishing optometry school, you've got a lot of um, debt. And then to go into a PhD program, you didn't get paid very much in a PhD program. So for some people, it's hard to do that. And so this is kind of like some bridge funding to maybe encourage some people who would need that in order to get them over the hump. So, that's a, yeah. That's a great commitment. Yeah. So I, I think we, we really got to be, as a profession, cognizant of this. You know, when all these great people are retiring, we need to feed that pipeline because because we need our research. If we don't have our research, then, you know, we're like a trade, you know, it's a trade, not a profession. Yeah. Um, you mentioned pipeline earlier. I had asked you, what are some cool things you've done in places you've been? And you've been on a lot of different parts of the planet. You've also been underwater. Can you tell us a few of those stories? 
So um, I'll tell you the underwater one. Um, when I was in undergrads, that's at Loyola, and that's north side of Chicago. The coach, he was the swim coach and the water polo coach, was also really big into scuba diving. He was a padding instructor. So I, I must have taken a course like after school or something. I, I took scuba diving with him. And so I went on a couple of dives. My first dive is, you know, you think of all these scuba diving, you see it on TV, like in the Caribbean and stuff. My first scuba dive, scuba dive I think it was in Kenosha in the spring in a, um, a quarry. And it was the coldest I've ever been in my entire life, like in April or May or something like that in a quarry. So that was my first, which is completely dark, right? You're in a quarry. It's dark. That was my first dive. Probably my second or third dive was a night dive in Lake Michigan with the same gentleman. And I don't know, like you kind of, you know, I really like this guy and, you know, I'm trying to be brave and all that. But we went on a night dive and went out to, in the lake, they've got abandoned water filtration plants. So they're big buildings and people used to live out there. So there's intake pipes that, you know, they used to, the water used to either going out or in, however it worked. So we swam through the pipes and then came up in this building and walked around. I'm claustrophobic. And I'm telling you, that's probably one of the scariest things I've ever did. But, you, you know, you didn't want to look like a wimp, right? And what are you going to do? It's it's nighttime and you're underwater. It's not like you can change your mind and leave. So so that was a, an interesting one for me. But I never, it, it was terrifying. I, it's not like you can stop and say, can we have a conversation about this? I, I'm feeling yeah. a little anxious. Like, what did I get myself into, right? But you and your husband have seen beautiful parts of the world. Anything that really stands out to you? Um, I've got my favorite countries and I love South Africa and it's South Africa's, I, I think it's all the wildlife, you know, just to, to see the wildlife is to me, I, I like seeing squirrels and bunnies. You know, if I see a cottontail when I'm walking around, it's like, wildlife. I mean, so you can imagine if you see a type, a, a, a lion or a rhino, I mean, it's, it's more than a, a cottontail, but so I love South Africa. Um, and then I'm a big fan of Australia and New Zealand. They're gorgeous. And I think those are probably my favorite countries. But, you know. Makes you think again, we can't, we can't wait until we can travel again, you know. How about it? Yeah. I, I want to make sure we talk about the American Academy of Optometry. It's incredibly important to you. Um, I remember in my time again at ICO, you convinced a number of us as third and fourth year students to go to a meeting. I remember one in Nashville. Um, can you share your thoughts about why it should be important to those that are in practicing uh, in practice in optometry? Well, um, you know, we've got our two organizations and, you know, the AOA is more your legislative and, you know, doing things with that. Okay. So that's their focus in terms of practice and, you know, helping you span the scope for optometry for the Academy. Um, you know, we're all about education, innovative research, you know, to improving practice that way, not expanding your scope of practice, but making you a better practitioner. You know, so I, I would say that would be the difference in terms of being able to provide, you know, state of the art, top notch clinical, you know, uh, continue education so that, you know, if you come to the meetings, you're always, you know, you're seeing this stuff before it's published or white when it's gotten out, you know, it's not old news. Um, and the research would be the same. Uh, so uh, I, I just feel it's it's our, our research in our education branch. And that's important for optometry. You know, I, I, like I said, for someone who's in a, a regular practice and he has to keep up with everything, 
you know, the Academy is the best meeting in the world because you've got all the top-notch lectures there and you can find out what's going on in contact lenses and find out what the newest thing in low vision is and find out how to prescribe for an infant in a pediatric lecture. I mean, you've got all that and then you've got your science there as well. So to me, it's, I'm always excited. You know, I was excited as a, a student when I went and I'm still excited now when I go to the Academy. Well, there was nothing like becoming a fellow. Um, I didn't pursue it further than that. Many of you have. But, uh, yeah, a, a quick shout-out to the Academy and, and to my audience to look into what it takes. It's, it's a great, uh, rigorous effort that you put yourself through. A couple final things. Who in your optometric career has impacted you the most and how? It would be Michael Rouse, who was my, you know, one of my main mentors during my uh, residency and Mike's deceased now. And, um, yeah, I, he was just a force. He was a force and he was, he was, a um, a good role model. He was an excellent clinician, but he published way back when, you know what I mean? When people weren't doing much, he was still doing studies. He was curious, you know, always trying to find answers and he was a really good teacher too. So he was a really good optometric educator. So I would say he would be my primary one, but I have many. You know, I have many. Uh, yeah, of course. And it's just, it's nice to recognize him and what he did for you in, in, uh, in this time after he's, he's not with us. Um, you also love books. Uh, I wish we all had more time to read. I know you want more time to read, but what's that favorite book? Oh, boy. I don't have a favorite book. Okay. Um, I love the, you know, so many I think of are like older books, you know, The Bean Trees by... Barbara Kingsolver and The Life of P. Um, uh, I'm like blanking. You know, are, now are you, I mean, No, it's no problem. Are you more of a fan of books that are fiction, uh, given yeah. how scientific you are? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Freeze yeah. your mind so, a little? Yeah, so I do like, um, I probably do read more fiction. I definitely yeah. read more fiction. Yeah. And, you know, some mysteries, you know, that type of thing. But, uh I have done other books, but I'm not like, I, the only thing I don't do is science fiction. I'm not big on science fiction. That's not an area for me. That's awesome. The World According to Garp was oh, yeah. good, you know, and I can't remember, who's the author? Do you remember the author? Uh, no, no. I pictured the cover. Like, Blanken, he's my favorite author and I can't remember his name right now. So what happens <laughs> when you get old. Um, John... It's on the tip of my tongue, but all of his books are fabulous. And they're probably as soon, as, as, soon as the interview is done, you'll come with it. We'll I know. The World According to Garp. He did uh, Cider House Rules. It was a great book. Um, but anyway. Oh, it's uh, so on the tip of my tongue. I can't stand <laughs> it, but I'm sorry. Well, I know a way it'll come to you. I'll ask you one last question. What's that bit of advice you'd give to a practicing OD who is um, plugging along center of the fairway? And, um, you know, you've got a different perspective on the patient care arena and, you know, what, what academics doing. What's that advice to the mainstream audience that, that taps into sandbox stories? I, I don't understand your question. Say that again. What is the advice you have to a doc that's in regular private practice, sort of mainstream practice, given you have a unique perspective, right? You're not in practice like that. You come from academics and research. Do you have any advice for um, you know, the average practicing doctor that comes from your years of experience in academics about how um, to practice, where to focus, things to add or subtract out of their day? 
Well, I, I think it's important to remain curious and keep up because I think it's hard to keep up. But I, so to me, that would be a challenge, but I think it's the good folks rise to that challenge, you know, and, and, and keep up. Um, the other thing is that it's okay if you don't know everything. I think some people have a hard time, um, how do I say that? A hard time admitting that or telling a patient that. And I find that when I tell patients that, you know, sometimes I've told patients and said, you know, this, you're, this is a really hard case and I'm not so sure, but I've got, you know, so-and-so I know, you know, Bruce Wick in Houston and I can call him and talk to him. And so I'm going to do that before our next appointment. And that always goes over. I Good. Nobody ever thinks less of me. They're always, the patients always feel like, oh, she's calling an expert. You know, she's going to talk to somebody. But I think some people, it's like if they don't do it or they don't understand it, they don't want the patient to know or they don't want to co-manage. And and so that's one thing I think that optometry hasn't been very good about is co-managing patients. Do you know what I mean? Me sending you the complicated contact lens fit that I can't do, you know, and and, and working like that. So that would be my advice. More interprofessional, you know, more more referrals amongst ourselves, I think. Uh, that, that I'm glad I asked the question a second way because that was genius, right? Remaining curious, having some self-awareness of what you know, and really think about the patient's perspective. If a doctor says, I'm not sure, but I'm going to call one of my colleagues who is an expert and we're going to put our heads together. Um, they're yeah. not looking at you as insufficient. They're saying, I've now got another brilliant mind right. thinking about me. Right. That's fantastic. And that's really often what happens in the colleges, isn't it? In, in their academic settings, yeah, sure. you have that those resources at hand. Yeah, yeah. And well, that's you know, for young young faculty sometimes don't want they don't want to say I don't know, you know. What I mean, and I think docs in practice are like that sometimes too. They don't want to say I don't know, but it's okay to do that. You know, if you don't know, just say I'm going to get back to you. You know, we're going to find out the answer, and then I'm going to take care of you. Well, I thank you very much, Dr. Sue Cotter, for joining me on Sandbox Stories. I appreciate your positive impact on my educational career and, and also for you sharing of yourself to record this for others to listen. I really appreciate you being here. Well, long time no see, and it was great to see you, Scott. <laughs> thanks. And to the Be audience, fair. thanks for attending. And until my next Sandbox Story, be great at all you do. Bye-bye.